I don't know if the technology for this still exists, but when I was a kid growing up in Chihuahua, Mexico, we would go to the movie theater, often sneaking off to the movie theater, because my parents weren't always a fan of all the movies that we as kids chose to see, me and my friends. And I think technology has made this impossible because I don't ever remember this happening since I've been an adult in the United States, but often the movie in Mexico would start out of focus. The first minute or two were blurry. Did this happen to anybody else or did we just have a lousy movie theater where I grew up? <laughs> Does that happen to other people? Okay, apparently that is a thing or was a thing. I don't know. I don't know anything about movies except that occasionally I enjoy them, but I think the guy in charge of making the magic happen is called a projectionist. He seemed, and I could see him scurrying into that locked room, he seemed to be a very young man, not much older than I was when I was a kid seeing all this. And way too often at the 2001 movie theater, that tells you how long ago this was. They called it the 2001 movie theater because 2001 was this unimaginably distant, glorious time <laughs> where we were all going to move around on jetpacks and cars would no longer be necessary. The movie would start out of focus, and in Mexico, in that setting, the crowd doesn't really boo, it whistles. Okay? And I won't do it because I'll tear your head off with the mic this close to my mouth. But we would whistle and somebody would yell, ajustale, adjust it, right? And just all this contempt poured on this poor projectionist. And you could see that it was, he was trying and then it'd get a little bit worse and then the whistling would get much, much worse. And then finally it would snap into focus and then there was kind of this contemptuous cheer, right? Like, yay, finally you did your job. Now we can see what's actually happening. And it was kind of agonizing because good movies usually start with a bang. If you can't see in the first few minutes, it's really annoying because that's usually, if it's a good, if it's a story well told, they're setting up the conflict and letting you know who the good guys and the bad guys are to get you hooked right from the start. But for a while, in our child experience at this poor little movie theater, life was out of focus. And I think as we get into 2 Corinthians chapter 5, my contention to you this morning is that most people on earth, and sadly many Christians among them, live a life that is out of focus in view of what God can see very clearly. I want you to do something difficult, and I want you to consider that maybe you don't know everything, and you're not doing everything just right. I'm not judging you. I'm, that's the challenge for me as well. We are all too often, far too easily pleased with ourselves. I don't know about you, but I think I'm right pretty much all the time. When I discover that I'm wrong, I change my mind, and then something wonderful happens. I'm right again. <laughs> I'd like you just to consider, for the purposes of your own spiritual growth and for your impact on eternity, that maybe some of the things you take for granted that you see very clearly, you're not actually seeing in focus at all. That you think that your vision of life and reality as you're currently experiencing is perfectly in focus only because that's the way you've always seen it. That like the eye test, there may be another lens that can snap in front of you that makes everything crystal clear. 2 Corinthians 5, that's what it's about. 
There's going to be some, frankly, lyrical, symbolic language from Paul. He's going to talk about heavenly things, and that gives me a mountain to climb to explain it, and to you a mountain to climb to believe it, because we've been conditioned by this world, our culture, and our own senses that the only things that are real are things that we can touch. People who live that way don't think to consider that the most important things in their lives, like love and loyalty and courage and generosity, can be experienced, but they can't actually be measured in a scientific way at all. Some of the most important things that we call life, that make life, are actually spiritual experiences because God Himself is spirit, Jesus tells us. My point is that life is out of focus because, for most of us, the focus is on the wrong place. Let me show you what I mean visually. Life on earth looks a little bit like this. It looks like a dot. You just have a little short period of time. And eternity doesn't look like this at all. Eternity looks like this. Eternity goes on forever, and that line, which all I can do is put it on a screen, but your geometry teacher was right, lines do actually theoretically go on forever. So that line can go out into space in either and opposite directions and continue forever, never actually ending. That is the life of God, that is life as God knows it, and my invitation to you is going to be not to live for the brief time that you've been given, but to see life as God knows it and as Paul explains it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and to live with an eternal focus. Open your Bibles with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And let me warn you on the front side that Paul here is going to be speaking about things like tents and homes and houses and dwellings and all he's talking about Hopefully you'll be able to see that immediately even before I explain it. Paul is talking about life in a body as he experienced it. And just orient you to the man writing the letter. The man who wrote the letter of 2 Corinthians generally had someone actually write his letters for him. He would dictate them in part because Paul's physical body was ruined. If Paul was preaching here this morning, many of you would avert your gaze from him. You would only listen to him because his physical appearance appears to be, based on his own writings, a pitiable thing that would make some weak-stomached people kind of feel bad for him. His vision was evidently ruined. His body was scarred. He had been shipwrecked and beaten and imprisoned and left for dead under a pile of rocks after men tried to kill him. They tried to execute him by throwing large stones at him and crushing his body and his head. They thought he was dead and they left him for dead. This is in the first century. No cosmetic surgeon is coming. You get what you get, and you bear in your body the scars that life left on you. Paul is writing about his body and eternity from a ruined frame. And he writes 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. 
want you to help you parse the, I want to help you parse the language here. When Paul speaks here of a tent and an earthly home, all he's talking about is his physical body. He's not talking about heaven as we commonly think of it. He's explaining his own physical experience. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, watch the contrast in words, we have not a tent but a what? A building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, for in this tent, in other words, in our body we groan. The tent is Paul's very apt word picture for the body he's living in and the body you live in because tents are meant to be temporary. Put it to you like this. Would you want to live in a tent for the rest of your life? The most avid camper here does not want to live in a tent forever. Not even the best one, not even those that have rooms. Some of you all have gotten really fancy with tents. But tents at their best are very temporary and actually really fragile structures. Paul says, we know that if the tent that is our earthly home, in other words, our earthly body is destroyed, we have something better, something more permanent coming. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Would you agree that in this body you occasionally groan? Depends on your age sometimes. But let me show you how that works. Even the youngest among us, those who feel invincible and actually think for a few golden years that they're immortal, if they're old enough to have that thought that at least in their case an exception will be made and they'll live forever, all they have to do is look at their baby pictures to watch the advance of time. The truth is, all of these tents are only temporary, and life on this earth, in this creation, Paul says, in this tent we groan. And we not only groan, there's not only groaning, there's longing. Look at verse 2, in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. Paul here is countering something from Greek thought that I'm going to explain to you in a minute. But for now, you need to understand this. Paul says, my present experience like yours, Corinthians, is I find myself in this body and it's painful. And I had a little bit of a remembrance of that in the last couple of weeks because I'm not always the most responsible person with my actual adult responsibilities and using COVID as an excuse it took me a long time between doctor's visits to have any blood work done. And then I thought, you know, my kids are grown. I'm a grown man. I have adult responsibilities. People depend upon me. I better go to the doctor. And they drew far more blood than I thought was necessary or even possible. <laughs> I'm looking at this young phlebotomist, and he just keeps putting bottles up to the like, Okay, man, like leave some for me. I'd like to walk out of here. And then for a few tense days, prayerfully, I just I wondered, because I know how old I am, and I know my family history, and I just wondered what the doctor might say. This time, he said, it's all good. 
He won't always say it's all good. Paul's right. We're in a tent. It's very fragile. Because of the effect of sin, it cannot possibly last forever, not even for the youngest among us. Sweet lady in our church, Natalie Stetler, died on January of this year. Natalie is one of the oldest people I've ever met. She died not long before her 99th birthday. Did you hear what you just said? First service said it too. I said she was almost 99 and you said, wow, do you think you're going to make it? Can I tell you that Natalie was amazed that she made it? When she became a shut-in, I'd visit with her every other week. Having no other family, I'd stop over and visit. And sometimes she would laugh at the absurdity of still being alive. She would say to me, Bruce, can you believe it? What are you supposed to say? No, I can't. I mean, <laughs> you're way past the actual terial, actuarial tables, hon. Good job. <laughs> and then, as we knew and we often discussed, one day her doctors could do no more. One day she slipped away. This earthly tent failed her for the last time. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. That's what the very old and the severely injured teach you. Life in these bodies is, for everybody, eventually a burden. While we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Paul explains, not that we would be unclothed. In other words, it's not that we want to get rid of our bodies altogether, what we groan and what we long for is that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Here's the first big biblical truth that will help you get your life on this earth into focus. Number one, we will enjoy, according to Jesus, eternal life in a resurrected body. You will not float around as a disembodied spirit. If your vision of heaven is a ghostly version of you that is transparent with a similarly ghostly harp maybe in your hands, I have good news for you. That's either a Red Bull commercial in your mind or ancient Greek thought that has seeped through to the 21st century, which we are shot through with, by the way, because the idea that the body is a shell to be used and discarded is from ancient Greek thought, not the Bible. The ancient Greeks thought of, as the body at the best as a vessel that was unimportant. And that thought has continued to influence our society to this day because people do all kinds of terrible and destructive things to themselves with this justification. It's my body. Or it's just my body. That's Greek thinking, not biblical thinking. I want you to hear Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 explaining the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 is one of the longer chapters in the entire New Testament, and it is all about the resurrection of Jesus applied to Christians with the promise that because Jesus rose, we also will rise. That sometimes is missed in Sunday celebrations and Easter celebrations. The point of the resurrection of Jesus is that He is back from the dead to give life to those who die. Not as disembodied spirits, not 
as Paul says, that we would be naked, rid of the body forever. No, we want to be further clothed, better clothed, and Paul explains that, 1 Corinthians 15. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood, in other words, these bodies right here, these dying, failing bodies, cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Of course. How could a body like mine, how could a body like yours, failing as it is, with any number of things that could harm or kill you, how could it last forever in a place that is eternal? No, that's not the way the future works, Paul says. Verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, which is his euphemism for death. We shall not all die, in other words, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Read the last verse with me. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. That is the promise that we will enjoy eternal life in a resurrected body. And not only that, our embodied life in eternity will be better in every way than the life we have now. I want you to hear that. The best in God's economy and God's plan is still to come. Our embodied life in eternity will be better in every way than the life we have now. Look at verse 6. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 5. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So my contention right now is that the embodied life, the resurrected life you will someday enjoy will be better in every way than the life you're enjoying now. How can that be? Why is that? Well, verse 5 tells me that the eternal life, the embodied life, is a life that God is preparing you for. In other words, you're going to someday experience life as God actually intends it to be, free of the effect of sin, free of frailty, free of weakness. And Paul says this has a galvanizing effect. This isn't just mere theological speculation. It actually has a dramatic effect on his practical day-to-day -day life. Look at verse 6. So we are always of good courage. We're not downhearted. We always pick our head up. We always move forward with confidence. Why is that, Paul? Verse 6. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. I want you to look very carefully at verse 6, and I just want to dwell on it with you for a moment. Paul says that because we remain in these failing temporary bodies, our present experience is because we are at home in these tents, we are away from the Lord. Now you say, well, I thought he would be with us. He will. 
and he is. Jesus is very much alive. He promised at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, I will be with you every day to the end of the age. He is very much with you. When you turn to Jesus for forgiveness of your sins, when the Holy Spirit showed you your need of Jesus, you turn to him, an actual, real, living person, and you put your faith in him. Verse 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. But you're not with him right now. This is a mind-blowing thought, even for most Christians. When Jesus rose from the dead, he rose in a glorified body. You may remember, he did very ordinary, mundane human things like have breakfast with his disciples. Like tell Thomas, who doubted it, to examine his body. Jesus showed him the wounds in his physical body, now resurrected and now glorified. No longer failing, no longer in pain, no longer agonizing, perfect and glorified. You will someday have a body like that. And in the meantime, Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. You're with Him and He's with you because you have spiritual life in Him and He puts His life in you and yet you're separated from Him. You're not face to face. And because Christ exists now in a perfect, glorified human body, and because someday you will exist in a perfect, glorified human body, which is your own and God's gift to you, you actually will someday see Jesus face to face. You'll be able to touch him as the disciples did. You'll be able to hear his actual voice. You'll be able, as they did, to experience his life not as one spirit to another, but in the actual personal flesh. Speaking as a pastor, do you know how many times I've walked into living rooms and emergency rooms and cemeteries wishing that Jesus were beside me or that I could just follow him and they could see him and hear from him instead of me. On this life, all we have is messengers. We have messengers in failing bodies who speak of a God they know and experience and love and trust and know is just as real as they are in the flesh, but they cannot see. That's Paul's agony. That's Paul's pain. We are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. In other words, it does not matter that we cannot see Him now. We know that He is there. We have a personal trusting relationship with Him. And verse 8, yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That's amazing. Paul's saying and explaining that the embodied life in eternity is going to be better in every way than the life we have now. Paul says, actually, I'd rather get started now. Yes, the price of admission is physical death, but I wish that were already happening because I have such a clear vision of the life that is to come, and I know that that's going to be better in every way, mostly because we will actually personally, physically be with Jesus. Now, not many people have that conviction. Anybody here feel like dying? You've done a lot already today to avoid death, right? 
I looked both ways before crossing the intersection, stopped at the red lights. You're going to eat, you're going to sleep, you're going to drink water. Life on this earth is precious. God has made it to love God has made us to love the life he's given us. And Paul says, through the eyes of faith, because his physical life has become so difficult, he can see into the next life and says, I wish it were already here. If I were absent from this body, I would be present with the Lord, and that would be much better. There's only two ways in my personal observation to get there. One is great suffering. Because of aging, because of pain, most people reach a point in their life if they're very fortunate and very blessed to have a very long life. The balance between pleasure, pleasure and pain shifts so dramatically that they just wish it were over, not in a self-hating way, but knowing that a better life is just ahead and the present life is hardly worth living because it's so painful. I saw that with Natalie. She was cheerful and funny all the way to the end, but in the last two months in particular, she would evermore talk about heaven and sometimes ask me why she wasn't already there. Almost everyone she already she loved had already gone ahead of her. Suffering is in one reason, and the other is rare, but I've seen it one time in particular. Sometimes people have such a clear spiritual vision that God doesn't need a lot of pain to pry their hand off their earthly life. They're more open-handed with it because they see the life that is to come so clearly. I won't mention his name because I wouldn't want to embarrass him. He's a godly, sweet man, but Years and years ago, a godly man, I was told by one of his kids, went to his doctor and got his blood work done, and he got a different report. His doctor called him in and said, you probably only have a few weeks. Get your stuff together. Get your affairs in order. Well, that's a terrible thing. So he started, but the results were so dire that they ran the blood work again, and this time, everything's clear. It went from certain imminent death to you're doing great. You're actually a picture of health in about five days. His family knew nothing of this, but his, one of his kids is telling me about this. When dad finally called and explained all this to the kids, he said to the kids, you know, when I got that news, I started getting excited. And the kids said, dad, that's terrible. What about us kids and what about mom? And he said, yeah, yeah, but I was going to go to heaven. And I heard that story probably, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. And it's convicted me ever since. Because he had the clarity, the spiritual depth, the vision that Paul had to be told by his doctor, you don't have long. And his reaction was, great. I'll soon be on to the better thing. All of this, Paul tells us, is the gift of God. Look in verse 5. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Second big biblical truth. Number two, this embodied eternal life is the gift of God. It is God's promise at God's expense. Your eternal life in a body that God himself will grant you as your permanent residence, never again to cry, never again to feel pain, is God's gift to you. 
He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Sometimes charts help me, so let me walk you what it, through what it looks like to have life with God. First of all, you trust God. Eternal life, life with God, begins at the moment you trust Jesus, but it is shadowed by sin and the fallen creation. If you are a Christian, if you have sincerely turned from yourself and turned, your, turned yourself over to Jesus, walking away from your sin, the moment you did that, eternal life for you starts right then. But, as you know, the eternal life you enjoy in Christ right now is always cast in shadow by your sin, by the sin of others, and by the effect of sin on this world. We live through what Paul, what C.S. Lewis calls the shadowlands. And then you die. And Paul says in verse 8, yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That's what we call life after death. The biblical teaching is the instant you die, you will be with the Lord. To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. You will be with Him personally. You will know Him and He will know you. But that's not the final state. The final state, or what Bible students call the eternal state, is what one scholar has called, here's a great phrase, life after life after death. And what does that mean? That means that someday you will be resurrected to enjoy eternal life in the new creation. And mudslides won't kill anyone any longer. And you won't have, farmers won't have to worry if sun or flood or wind or vandals will destroy months and months of their labor. Someday life actually will be perfect. The end of the book, Revelation pictures that, a new heaven and a new earth to be enjoyed in new eternal bodies. Don't think harps and clouds, think Eden. Not disembodied existence, but perfect existence as your heart has always told you that it can be, but never on this earth. That's what we're looking for. That's what we're waiting for. And Paul says that all of this has a magnificent sobering effect on him. Verse 8, for the second time in three verses, he says, yes, we are of good courage. Don't miss that. If you can see eternity, it will give you courage. It does not fill you with dread because the worst thing that can happen to you, which is to suffer and then to die, will actually usher you into the fullness of eternal life. Verse 8, yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Watch it get really practical now. Here's where you can do something about all this lofty, cosmic, eternal truth. Verse 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to do what? Please Him. And here's why. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. That teaching, the judgment seat of Christ, is so important and so precious. I've taught it to you a few times since I've been here as your pastor. I'll do so again next Sunday. 
understanding what the judgment seat of Christ is, who will be there and what will happen, is life-changing. But for now, all you need to know is this. Number three, our goal, according to Paul, to have a life that is fully in focus, our goal is to please God in this life because we're going to answer to Him in the next. Whether we're here or whether we are suddenly with Him, Paul says our aim, whether we're suffering or rejoicing with Him in eternity, we only have one goal. Our goal is to please Him. And my invitation to you, with the failing body you have, same as mine, but the short time you have left, because you've already agreed with me, it won't go on forever. And you don't have long to live for God and love God and love and serve others in this life. My invitation for you is to live for the line and not for the dot. You'd be foolish to live for something that lasts so little apart from the reality of what God has taught you about the life to come. Live for the line. Live for eternity. Not for this short little dot on earth. Let's pray together. Christian, we've celebrated communion together. And we've thought about big, heavy things, some of the biggest thoughts in Scripture. Life as God knows it and life as God will make it. Do you have that certainty? That you're living for the line? Not for this brief dot? You put all your best efforts here to get the most you have out of this life? You'll be disappointed. And as I'll explain to you next week, good or bad, you and I, both individually on our own, will answer to God for the choices, the emotions, the thoughts, the priorities that shape our life right here. You don't have a whole lot of time. You really don't. And the really sobering thing is, you know it's not long, and you don't even know how long it is. Could be decades from now, could be days. The invitation, always the same. We make it our aim to please Him. We don't esteem suffering and death on this earth to be as of much importance as eternal life with God someday. If you don't know Jesus, my invitation to you right now is to turn to him and trust him. If you're getting sick of yourself, tired of sin, tired of selfishness, and you're ready to turn to him, he will listen to you. Just tell him you're sorry for your sin. Ask him to save you. He will. He's never turned away a repentant sinner ever. He never, ever, 